And now, the starting lineup for Inside Slam. At guard, number 11, from the University of Iowa, standing 4 feet 26 inches, it's the man with the smoothest voice in the commentary box, Mr. Magic, Steve Confino. And at small forward, number 6, standing, well, sometimes because he prefers to sit, Mr. Stats himself, Evan Goldback. This is Inside Slam. So, Steve, last night I saw that movie, 1917, Sam Mendes' movie. Absolutely incredible. Have you seen it? Yes. Um, <laughs> check out more podcasts from Global Story Network, like Surviving the Impossible, a cinematic podcast that follows the harrowing true story of Nick Yaris, a man who spent over 20 years on death row for a crime he did not commit. What could be worse than being sentenced to death for a crime you did not commit? Knowing you put yourself there all because of a lie. To check out this incredible story, head to globalstorynetwork.com or search Surviving the Impossible wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Inside Slam. This is Evan Goldback. This is our first podcast of 2020. I'm sitting next to the main man, Steve Carfino. Steve, uh, first of all, Happy New Year. It's uh, it's already the middle of uh, January, but we've had a few weeks off. Uh, we've had a good Christmas. We've had a good New Year. Actually, what are you, what have you been up to for these past three or four weeks? I went to Tasmania. Oh, nice. Oh, man, that place is... You know, I, I, that's where I started off. I came to Tasmania. Well, I came to Australia in December of um, 85. You know, spent two seasons there, and it was a beautiful place. I, I mean, was one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the thing about Tasmania is it's beautiful, yep. but they've done a great job with the tourism, and you know, and it's that great blend of you know, nice restaurants and cafes, and but it's a great blend of it's kind of under what's the word I'm looking for underdeveloped. Yeah, you know, so you can go to look at this beautiful beach and look at this beautiful scenery. It's undiscovered. And, it is. It is. It really is. And the thing is, is that I, I find in Australia, we're like, everybody wants to go on the Europe trips or the trips to the US or the trips to the Maldives, all these places. We have one of the biggest continents on earth and yeah. we have so much beauty around us. I think their tourism slogan is something like, uh, something about air, which is actually quite relevant now because of obviously all the bushfires that happened. But yeah, some of the most beautiful beaches and coastline in the world. And it's a one hour flight. Yeah, I mean, you can have the best of both worlds. You can go there and you can go someplace that's kind of underdeveloped and, and it's like you're in the 70s. And then you can go to a place that's got this swanky, you know, um, chef from Melbourne. And, and you know, if you want to pay high prices, you can do that too. You know, if you want to get a, a scallop pie, you know, at a place that's right next to the dock, you can do that as well. It's, it's I, I had a fantastic time. I, I went to the national parks. I went. Did you some, know, to Bruni hiking. Island. So Bruni, we go to Bruni and we get the ferry across. And one of the highlights of the trip, and this sounds crazy, but we were there and it was like a long line that we waited to, you know, get on the ferry. And once we we're over there, there was a guy selling cherries for 10 bucks for a kilo. Wow. And they were just dark, this dark maroon color. And they were big and juicy and sweet. And we got another kilo on the way back. This guy must have made... Oh, he would have made over $1,000 easy. Really? Easy. Wow. People Amazing. were buying them like two at a time. And he, there was not one time where he was trying to sell them. He was just trying to 
get the money and give them to people. Go for a walk, Battery yep. Point, you know, scones and tea and just, awesome. you know, historic buildings. Beautiful. Yeah. I can't rave enough about it. I had a great time. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I think 2020 for me is just all about being uh, – you know, it's making an abundant year, an authentic year. And, you know, I'm really excited about uh, the podcast for this year. And I th- we were just talking about it off air. We're going to kind of be delving a little bit more outside the NBA. So for our listeners, obviously, NBA will still be the main focus. But we're going to talk about other sports that are that are topical. We're going to get into our movies, you know, a bit of lifestyle subjects. Your uh, love life. My lack of love life. <laughs> no, I mean, for me, it's, um, you know, it's just talking about things that I'm passionate about. Um, but yeah, this, I mean, coming up on this episode, obviously, we're going to talk about Ben Simmons. We've got Zion's debut that's coming up. We're going to talk a little bit about the All-Stars, who we think should be on the East and West. Um, the Australian Open's just started for for those that love their tennis. The Australian Open's just started. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about the movie 1917, which I saw yesterday. And I know we got a little bit of uh, some differing opinions on it, but it's going to be an action-packed podcast. So, right. where do you where do you want to start? Do you want to start with Big Ben? Let's start with Big Ben. Let's start with Big Ben. So, Ben Simmons. You know, I know we get on him sometimes in this show uh, for his lack of jump shot and and all that sort of stuff. But the guy's Eastern Eastern Conference Player of the Week this week. Uh, yesterday went 34, 12, 12, five steals. Uh, only three people in the last 20 years have done that. James Harden, CP3, and LeBron. But the difference is, and I actually saw a lot of the highlights for that game, he looked really aggressive. And I think that's the difference um, for me, is that he's actually getting getting a bit more aggressive. He's you know, becoming more comfortable in who he is. And yeah, maybe maybe he doesn't need that jump shot after all. What, what do you think? Well, I've said all along, the reason that he doesn't shoot the three is because he doesn't have to. He hasn't his whole entire life. He's he's oversized for any position that he plays. You know, he plays the point guard. He's a legitimate point guard, too. He's a pass-first guy, but he's learned that he can get to the rim anytime he wants. You know, like, why wouldn't you get upset when you miss a three-pointer? Because he can get to the rim anytime he wants. So I think that, you know, when you're that good, you kind of rewrite the game. You know, Magic Johnson rewrote the game. Larry Bird rewrote the game. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar rewrote the game. Ben Simmons isn't going to rewrite the game. Though. He why not? Because he is a six foot ten beast. He's a beast, but what in the playoffs? What's what? What's everybody going to do? They're going to sag off him, and they're going to dare him to shoot. So yes, I, w- I love the fact that he's being aggressive, but rewriting the game i don't i think that's maybe taking it a bit too far well he has that type of talent magic johnson couldn't really shoot but he got this little funky little set shot you know that may do so you had to come out and guard him so he could get past you he wasn't super athletic or quick or anything like that ben simmons has got that type of game where he can rewrite the position like when i say rewrite um the game i mean like He's not a typical point guard. He's not a typical shooting guard, you know, but he's effective because he's six foot ten and can get to the rim, can finish with either hand, he can find open people. So he's capable. There are not many players in the NBA capable of getting numbers like that. And he can get numbers across the board. Like he's one of those guys that can stat all the way across the board. He could have thrown four block shots into that too and just been a monster all the way across the stat sheet. That's what I've been really excited about this year for Ben Simmons is his defense. I mean, five steals. The guy is just so active on defense. And I'm so excited for Australia for the um, the Olympics because 
that's going to be a huge boon for us um, on the defensive end because, you know, I think we've got a really good defensive team and he's in the conversation for defensive player of the year. I mean, I can't think of many other players that are really standing out. I mean, Kawhi's not really standing out. Draymond Green, forget about this year. The Warriors stink. Uh, Rudy Gobert's up there this year. But Ben Simmons is making a huge case for defensive player of the year. I think the only thing that he's got to do is just be more consistent. You know, we're talking about him being aggressive. He should be aggressive every single night. And he can, you know, he might not be able to get 34, 12, 12, and 5 every single game, but he could very easily come up with, you know, 20, 10, 10, and 3, you know, every single night. Yeah. You know, he's that type of impact player. You know, talk about guys that, and I'm going to go back to that rewriting the way the game is played. You know, Rondo was like that. He wasn't like your typical point guard. Mm. He kind of rewrote the way the point guard position could be, you know, observed. And so I, I think that he's that type of player. There's one player this year that, for me, has just almost totally changed the game, and that's Luka Doncic. The guy's a freak. The guy's averaging like a triple-double every single game. But, you know, he's basically Ben Simmons, but a little bit less athletic, but obviously he's got the three-point game. So it's good to see that not everyone has to be that cookie-cutter because Luka Doncic is changing the game the way the game is played one way, and then Ben Simmons is doing it on another way, which is great because there's so many varieties of plays these days, which makes the game, I think, more exciting. I mean, the game is more exciting to watch than ever. You know, Luka Doncic, it is nothing. You know, like everybody used to just do backflips when Magic Johnson would get a triple-double or Michael Jordan or, you know, LeBron James, you know, more in more recent times. But triple-doubles are, you know, like big whopping numbers are happening all the time. And all across the board, we got that many. You know, like how was Damian Lillard's game? Oh, six my God. 61 points. And the guy was hitting the most ridiculous threes I've ever seen. I mean, you don't have NBA defenders, you know, are the best in the world because the game is – it's the best players in the world. They go out and get them, and, and the league has that reputation. But he's getting 60 on a world-class defender shaking his head like, I can't do any more than that without fouling him. Absolutely. Well – very, very quickly, because I want to get on to Zion, because I, I know he's making his debut very, very soon. But a few episodes ago, we talked about how I think we had a bit of a back and forth on you think today's defenders are better than 90s defenders. Now, I don't know if you saw over the Christmas period, they were replaying all the early 2000 NBA finals. I don't know if you saw it, like the Western Conference finals. Man, they, I don't know. It looked like the court was smaller back then. Mm. I don't know because these guys were getting beat up and it was the amount of space that they have in today's game. It's like they can walk through the lane for a dunk. And I'm watching it. I'm watching Ray Allen, you know, when he's playing for the Bucks, and I'm watching Jalen Rose when he's at Indiana. And they, it was such a brutal game. These guys were absolutely getting beat up. The defense was crazy. But has the, has the court gotten bigger or what, what's happened in the last 20 years? Because I'm looking at it going, these two games are completely different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the rules have changed. The NBA's about entertainment, you know, so they, they don't want guys getting absolutely assaulted when they make a great move and get into the lane, you know, so the game's been, it, it's changed. The rules have changed. The way the officiating is, has changed. And also flagrant fouls have changed. I mean, if you just lean on a guy, I've seen some ridiculous unsportsmanlike flagrant fouls called. And I mean, you just bump into a guy and make a professional foul. You're getting not only you're getting a flagrant foul, you're getting tossed out of the game. Yeah. 
it's it is ridiculous the how they've really erred to the side of caution for the game. I'll give you that. I know you're a '90s man, but no one wants to watch a guy get assaulted when he comes into the lane. Talking about assault, I got to. I know that you're busy over the Christmas period, but I saw so many assault fouls in the celebrity game. <laughs> <laughs> so we had Team Carfino. You know, I'm surprised you didn't say that. Yeah, Team Carfino versus Team Hill in the uh, the Sydney Kings. That was a, that was a great honour to yourself. And the celebrity game was a, was a lot of fun. It was um, it was good to be part of that day. But man, there was a big foul, <laughs> big fouls on that day. I know. <laughs> well, Jamie Sauer did a great job of putting the he, game together. He did a great job. But he he stacked his team. I stacked my team with talent. He stacked his team with footy players thugs oh my goodness my first you know like we made a nice play i think dan ewing came skipping through the lane thinking he was going to shoot a regular basketball shot and you know like they should have put some insurance out on his pretty face because he just got clotheslined the very first play everybody looked like oh my god that wasn't a foul and I, <laughs> it was just play on yeah yeah and so um you know to their credit they hit some shots you know joe healy came out joe healy was awesome, a knockdown man. she was knocked down she was she was money and they had some you know their you know their players hit shots and we hit all of our shots in warm-ups and and uh, I think we were a little shell-shocked from the first play when we got clothesline and there was no call. It was pretty funny watching from the sideline, seeing Marty Tapao, one of the biggest rugby league players in Australia, and actually fending off like he was playing <laughs> rugby league. And I'm like, yeah, I think the refs aren't just going. And then the funny thing is, is that the game was getting close with a minute to go. And then one of your guys got called for a foul. I'm like... Really? They're actually calling a foul now? I, uh, same thing. Same thing. I mean, you know, like, I, I've, obviously, I'm, I'm competitive and stinging at the fact that Shane Heal's team, you know, beat mine. Um, and then Shane's had a, a shoulder. You know, we shot free throws at a halftime, and we were supposed to shoot threes. So I was working on my threes, you know, for the last couple of weeks. And then it came down to free throws just for time, you know, yeah. that, that we're out on the floor. And then Shane's shoulder – you know, he's had trouble with his shoulder. So he had Ashley, his uh, oldest daughter, shoot against me. And um, he was like, who you want to go first? You know, he's, he's Shane's like like he's playing chess out there. And so I'm like, man, I'll go first. And so I missed like my first three. And then I thought, I better make one, you know. <laughs> It'd be embarrassing if I go over halftime. And so, you know, I hit one, missed another one, then, you know, hit a bunch of them in a row and ended up with 12. And on the 12th one, I shot it like as the buzzer went off. So I I felt like I needed to get double figures to have any kind of chance at winning. Ashley's a good shooter. So she just drains her first three or four. And then I thought, no, she's going to get it. And she ends up getting 14. So lose the game, lose to Shane's daughter, which is no disgrace. She's a good shooter. Yeah. And then after the game, they auctioned off the two jerseys with, you know, everyone's autograph on it. So um I went first and my jersey got two thousand and Shane's jersey got two thousand four hundred. So I was 0 for three on the night. Well disappointing. That's okay. That's yeah. okay. It was a great it was a great night. Jamie Sauer did a great job organizing, especially um, you know, with some time constraints. But yeah, there was a big buzz for that and uh you know, there'll probably be another one down the track. But well done to the Sydney Kings and the NBL for that one for sure. Yeah, and then great job uh, getting all that all of those dollars to the Starlight Foundation. Yeah absolutely. make a wish. Absolutely. Talking about different debuts, we finally get to see Zion this week. and there's I'm going to say no right now. I know what you're going to ask me. Yeah. What am I going to ask you? Can he still get rookie of the year? Yeah, can, that, that's, a, that's the only question because I don't want to go – I haven't seen him play, but 
Yeah, that's that's the question. Can he still do it? And you're saying no? Anything's possible, but I would say, boy, the season that John Morant's having. Oh, oh my God. You know, like, dare I say his highlights are, and I'm kind of whispering this now, mm. Jordan-esque. Can I, Jordan can, can I throw Michael Jordan's name in this comparison? He is exciting to watch. He can shoot it. He can put it on the floor. He can handle a rock. Um, it's got the attitude is, as well. Oh, yeah. He's having fun out there. He's got he's like a mix of Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan. His tenacity. I don't know what he's like on the defensive end of the floor. He reminds me a little bit like Derek Rose. He goes hard at it like Derek Rose did in his first few years. Like yeah, It's just nice. so explosive. Yeah. That's the kind of the play he reminds me of. But, yeah, for me, Ja Moran has rookie of the year. But, man, there's been some good rookies this year. And so I don't know who was mentioning it. Maybe it was Skip Bayless or one of those guys. And they said Ja Moran is going to have a better career than Zion. And if Zion doesn't get his health sorted quickly, I think they could be right because Ja Moran is looking like the real deal. You, you can never, you know, it might be one of those things like, oh, you know, like Greg Oden when he went number one, you know, he had injuries the whole time. And looking at it now, you could think that because Zion is six foot six and 280. He's a couple of hamburgers shy of 300 pounds. And that's a lot of body to be throwing on your feet. You know, but he still looks big. He still looks big around the face. He still looks like he's carrying like a tire. Like he's like a bigger version like of Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid. And I still don't think Joel Embiid has ever been at peak fitness, as far as I'm concerned. The guy is still carrying too much weight. But yeah, he just looks fat. Not yeah. fat, but he looks. You know, he looks like he's carrying extra pounds. Yeah, I mean that was something that Charles Barkley came into the league and. He had a good mentor, a great mentor, and Moses Malone. And Moses Malone was like, you know, if you're going to take your career serious, you got you got to get in shape. You know, I think the similar thing with, with Zion. You know, like for him to be carrying that weight around for 82 games and the wear and tear of being undersized. You know, for the position that he plays and the bodies that he's going to be banging up against, you have to be in peak fitness. And I think that you know the money that they're paying these guys. That's the least you can do is be in peak fitness so you don't put extra pressure on your body and have it breaking down and you know you have you miss half the games for the early part of your career. Well, thank you for answering that. I'm in total agreement by the way. I don't think he's going to win rookie of the year. I am interested to see how he goes, but yeah, very very impressed with Ja Morant. I am impressed with the Pelicans though. They are balling. They got a young team that They took yeah. a they took a while to get going. I know. And now Brandon Ingram is averaging – I mean, this is a good segue because that guy's averaging all-star numbers. Yeah. There was a talk um, around town that obviously Paul George should be you know, on the, on the Western Conference all-star team. And everyone's like, well, let's have a look at Brandon Ingram's numbers. I think he's averaging like 23, 10, 6 assists, something like that. But, yeah, that guy is looking really, really, really good. And on the defensive end, they're looking good. So Lonzo Ball is looking good on the defensive end. Uh, but, yeah, they're looking like a team that's on the up. Well, I think that what's exciting about this team is they're young. So you figure they're going to be inconsistent. So it does. it's not surprising that it, it took them a while to get going. But they're, they have a lot of players that were on that bubble of, you know, not getting the the, the right role to play not getting enough minutes, the opportunities to take him into, you know, the numbers that Brandon Ingram. Now he's getting that opportunity and he's 
taking it and running with it. And that's, I think that was always the exciting thing. You know, what's Lonzo Ball going to be like when he's not under such scrutiny? You know, like he's gone from L.A. to the Pelicans. So he's just out there enjoying, playing the game, feeling appreciated. So I think that that's what's exciting about that team. They've Hopefully they can keep them all together because imagine that team maturing and all playing well most of them they won't be able to keep all of them yeah you know most of them the the nucleus of that young talent and throw the right veteran pieces around them and just watch them go to town that would just be you know what's exciting about the nba there's just so many talented players and some guys that get with the right organization with the right teammates you know go from a guy that is a good pro to a guy that, you know, finds his niche and finds the chemistry and just goes to another level. That's exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. And he hit a game winner recently. So you know, even just those little things like hitting your game winner and standing up for your teammates and coming through in the clutch, that's what takes it to the next level. And it should be recognized, in my opinion, with, uh, with you know, with a spot on the All-Star team. Thinking about All-Stars, though, have you had a look at uh, on the East and the West and are you... I always, it's almost like I don't even care about the All Star game, um, game these days. Just because okay. of the last three or four years, it's just become what it's like two hundred to one ninety eight. It's getting a bit ridiculous. Um, I know, I yeah, I know, I know that they've changed it up where you have the team captains and all that sort of stuff. So they're trying to bring some relevance back to it. I know Adam Silver is is looking to implement a he's implementing a tournament halfway through the year to kind of get something relevant back into that NBA schedule because let's let's be honest the NBA also game probably in the last 7 8 years has become irrelevant just like the pro bowls are relevant in the NFL but it never used to be that way in the 90s they cared yeah they really really cared these guys went up against it yeah maybe the first quarter or sec- first two quarters but the second half these guys were balling yeah uh, i'm not a fan I'm not a fan. You know, probably the most interesting thing about the NBA was when it was in Vegas and all of the people came to Vegas and when it came to the party and grabbing drinks off the trays and the casinos and it was a mess. You know, probably, you know, if you look up All-Star Weekend pictures, that's probably the most entertaining, the NBA <laughs> All-Star. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with basketball. <laughs> Apparently, Vegas is never going to have the All-Star Weekend there again. For me, it's the three-point competition. That's for me, it's the all-star. That's that's what people care about the most. Not even the dunk contest now. Um, it, although, you know, this year, yeah, Dwight Howard is back and people are going crazy about that. But for me, the three-point contest... Why are people going crazy about Dwight Howard in the dunk contest? I have no... Because he wore a cape once? He wore a cape once and, and threw it into, he threw it into the basket. Remember that long jump? Yeah. Yeah. I think if you're over 6'10", you shouldn't be in the dunk contest. Well, Larry Nance was about the only guy I've seen that's 6'10", and he had like 7'3 arm span. <laughs> okay. um, he's, he came with some crazy dunks. I mean, you think – I mean, his son can dunk as well. But, oh, yeah. But Larry Nance is about the only guy I think that was worthy of being in a dunk contest. People are going to say, oh, you know, Dr. J was this or – they're going to come up with some pretty tall guys that were exciting, but it's such a disadvantage to be tall and be in a dunk contest. You I know, mean, Aaron, close, Aaron Gordon was good. Yeah, okay. I, I You're you're 100% right. I have to kind of step down on how aggressive I'm being on tall guys being in the dunk contest. But, he, you know, he's jumping over mascots, 
jumping up in the air, doing like a pike position and gymnastics and throwing it down with the other hand and reversing it over his head. Yeah. Okay. Aaron Gordon is another exception to that rule. But if you're seven foot in a dunk contest and Dwight Howard, after they came out with legitimate heights, he's nowhere near seven foot. But eh, I'd rather see Nate Robinson throwing it. Spud Spud, Webb. Spud Webb. Throwing it down. You know, these guys are jumping four feet off the ground. It just looks good because they're getting so much elevation and you can see the gap between the floor and their feet and how high they get. Guys like Jason Richardson, Isaiah Ryder. Um, At the end of the day, the the best is Vince Carter. Yeah. Yeah. He's the best dunker ever to me. Better than Jordan. Better than Dominique Wilkins. Vince Carter is number one. Yeah, and he's yeah. still and he's still playing the game. Oh yeah. Uh, and he's still dunking. T- talking about dunking, I I um I touched the backboard once. It was good. Nice. I was gonna say. You know, <laughs> I dunked the donut. Yeah. You dunked the donut? Oh <laughs> jeez. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've, I've, I think maybe when I was seventeen, eighteen I could dunk a smaller ball. I could yeah, never never been able to to get the air wasn't rare for me up there. Okay. Right. What's <laughs> I'm looking at our uh, topics on the show, and um, I don't think we're going to spend much time on our both of our athletic ability. Let's move on. Yeah, let's move on. Let's move on. <laughs> well, listen, guys, I did, I did say that we're going to be talking about some different uh, topics outside basketball. Um, Steve's almost spilled his water all over the desk, thank God. The Australian Open is uh, has just started. I actually love my tennis, so I – I grew up in the whole 90s Agassi versus uh, Sampras. When I was in school, you're either Sampras or you were Agassi. For me, I was always Agassi. And then since then, I've been Team Federer all the way. Um, But the Australian Open is on. Djokovic is his favorite to win. I think it's uh, it's heavily deserved. His favoritism, he beat Nadal last week in the ATP Cup. Federer hasn't really played too much competitively since November. Obviously, the Australians that are listening, well, I mean, if you're Australian, you either love him or you hate him, and that's Nick Kyrgios, and you know, hopefully he can take it to the next level this year. But, Steve, I know you've been a tennis fan. For you, what what are your memories of the Australian Open? Have you been to the Australian Open at any stage in, in your life? Yeah, I went to the Australian Open, and I, I enjoyed it on TV. Yeah. Okay. You know, I, I, my seats were in the sun. You know, like I had never been to a major before. So that was on my bucket list. And, you know, I really enjoyed going. But boy, they do a great job of the tennis coverage on television. Absolutely. They do such a really good job. And they've, their commentators, I believe, are the best at any sport because they don't bore the experts and they really have insightful ins- insight to the game that. You know, someone like myself who's who's not an expert, something that I can watch for in the match that's kind of behind the scenes, but with their experience and their their ability to communicate, you know, what's about to happen, at what point will they start doing a new strategy or trying to execute a new strategy of coming to the net more, watch him as the match unfolds, he'll do this more, hmm. he'll try and, you know, shorten the distance on, you know, return to serve, he'll get closer to the baseline. I think they do such a great job. Oh, absolutely. Oh, it's really interesting to watch tennis. And I can't say that about every sport. The commentators really give you something to look for in a match. Yeah, I completely agree. And with technology, you can obviously see more and more of these tactics kind of being played out in real life. In regards to seeing it live, I mean, 
I'm, I'm sorry that you had to sit in the sun, but for me, <laughs> I mean, I mean, if I sat in the sun, I'd be absolutely red like a beetroot. But for me, going to see the games live gives me a great. I mean, I'm, I enjoy tennis. I'm a social tennis player. Um, you know, I can I can definitely hit a ball. But when you see these guys, when you watch it on TV, it's obviously amazing because they do they have such good coverage. But when you actually see it live and you see how hard they're hitting the ball for for so long and how much spin they're putting on the ball, that gives me a greater appreciation. And I've been fortunate enough to see Roger Federer play maybe seven, eight times in my life. I've seen him overseas. I've seen him at Wimbledon. I've seen him in, um, at the Australian Open. And the way he glides across the court, and you see how much distance these guys are actually running. You don't see that on TV. These guys are pure athletes. They have to run for five hours. And people go, oh, yeah, well, they don't run the whole time. Yeah, but it's sprint, stop, sprint, stop. I mean, there is so much athletic ability in tennis that I don't think people realize until they watch it live. Yeah, I went to a gridiron game, and, and I couldn't believe how hard they hit. Oh, my God. And how big they were. And you can hear it. Oh, yeah. And you just think, how are these guys not dying on every tackle? You know, so to see the appreciation of how hard the ball is hit. Like I went to the Hopman Cup and I sat really close and I saw Serena Williams play. And, oh, man, she crushes the ball. James Blake, I got to watch him and how hard he was just crushing that forehand. So I got to agree with you there that it is different watching the game live. But I'm I'm not the tennis player that you are and clearly don't have the budget that you have. All these places that you've been and watched tennis live. Oh, my goodness. I should be asking for more money to do this podcast. <laughs> I've just been very I've just, I've just been a little bit fortunate in my life. Um, but in the, going back to the 90s, it was it was Agassi versus Sampras. Obviously, you know, you had your your Boris Beckers and uh, Michael Sticks and, you know, Michael Changs, all those guys. But. It was really Agassi versus Sampras, and Nike did such a good job. Do you remember those ads that these guys they had the they, the rallies? They went for days, and then the kid drops the ball, and they have to replay the point. I think Nike did a great job because they Nike basically took tennis to the next level with those two guys. But you're either one or the other, and for me, I was Sampras was always a favorite, but I loved that underdog in Agassi because he was like he was gritty. Sampras was that relied on his big serve, but yeah, man, I was a, I was team Agassi all the way. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you touched upon were Nike's ads, and boy, they do that for every every sport. Oh, yeah, <laughs> unbelievable! You know, Tiger Woods ads, Michael Jordan. Oh my goodness! But anyway, that's a tough one because those players were so fun to watch. You know, they had such a great rivalry, and any sport is enhanced by a rivalry. The Celtics, Lakers. Um, the Dodgers and the San Francisco Giants, you know, in the Western uh, Division. Just to name a couple of them, I'm sure you can come up with some football ones or soccer. Oh yeah, or whatever, Barcelona, you know. Real Madrid, yeah, and all that yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. you, you know, you know, you, you're a sports head. So um, <laughs> the thing about me, I got this great story that I love telling when um, when people talk about people that give great interviews or being in the media. Some of the things that you know, you look forward to, or when you're a part of um, a great interview or hear a great answer. And one of them was uh, Andre Agassi lost to Pete Sampras. I believe it was in the U.S. Open. And they, one of the commentators, sorry, one of the um, journalists asked Andre Agassi, where do you think you blew the match? 
or the match was lost. I don't know if he said it that harshly. I, I'm guessing yeah. he didn't say blew the match in, in, yeah. in an interview. Probably where did, yeah, where he lost it. Yeah. But I, I, I remember it being kind of like he could have said, that's ridiculous. Wow. Okay. But he didn't. He said, well, when you're playing someone as great as Pete Sampras, you have two, maybe three opportunities to turn the match around. And on all three of those occasions, he's on a second serve, he's down, um, you know, 1540. He puts an 111 miles, 111 mile an hour serve right on the tee on all three of those instances. And when you're playing against a great player, sometimes you got to tip your hat to somebody who comes up with such a pinpoint shot in such a crucial situation. And those opportunities go away. I thought that was maybe the greatest answer I've ever heard to a kind of a simple question. Yeah. And that's what we want as a viewer. You know, I remember sitting there, I'm not a tennis expert, but I remember that answer from decades ago. You know, Andre Agassi shared with us what it's like to be in the head of an elite Hall of Fame tennis player. I was right there with him. I, I understood what he was explaining. It was a wonderful moment. I love that. It get, it gives the, the viewer a, a real insight into the, the sportsman's mind. And that's, that's so rare these days because so, these days, these guys are just used to giving those cliche answers, but... You know, you just reminded me, like Agassi said that. I remember Federer saying the same thing about, um, you know, a couple of points um, that he should have taken advantage of, I think, when he lost a couple of finals. LeBron actually does that sometimes when he talks about specific moments in the game. And he re- he remembers, yeah, well, there was six minutes to go in the third and I did this and, the, and this is the coverage they gave me. You know, that sort of thing. I probably should have done this. Um, I know some of the great NFL guys do it. You hear it from Aaron Rodgers and, T- and Tom Brady specific moments in the game and it's just like it's locked into their memory and then they provide those insights and you're like how do you remember this oh yeah when i played i remembered almost every single play i could break it down and say you know we lost the game when we missed a layup and then they turned around and hit a three then we make another turnover you know i can remember the game like that Mm. um, because all the points and all the possessions are are so important another time that just pops into my head was Chris DeMarco, I think this, I, I may have gotten it mixed up a little bit with the Andre Agassi one. The journalist asked Chris DeMarco, and it was one of the majors. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, you know, where do you felt like you lost the match? You know, Tiger Woods hit like eight straight birdies. And and Chris DeMarco, who could have said, give the guy some credit, or, you know, that's a stupid question. He could have said that. But he's he said, well, I played 18 holes, and there were maybe two shots that I could have hit better, you know, for – an opportunity to have birdie and one of them um, I came up a little bit short and it and it rimmed the cup you know on my putt so there are no guarantees you're going to hit a birdie unless it's a tap in but he he once again he gave credit to Tiger Woods what it felt like to have the greatest player in the world running you down he said you don't want to give him extra opportunities I didn't feel like I did that today I played almost a flawless round of golf but the man had eight straight birdies. That's a superhuman effort, and you have to give him credit for that. And I just, another great answer, you know, that's sticking with me. And I don't know how long ago, you know, I'm sure we could probably get on our phones and Google it right now when Chris DeMarco was the runner-up to Tiger Woods in, a, in, a, in an open, in a major. Mm. Um, but, but that's what I watch television for. 
Absolutely. I watched that to, 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 to know what it feels like to be in the mind of an elite athlete. Absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head in terms of the golf because golf, you're only playing, there's, I think, a more finite amounts of time on a golf course that you can, that you're referencing. It's like in a basketball game, there's probably hundreds of little moments that you can, that you can reference, which makes it even more amazing that LeBron can remember this. But, you know, you and I play golf and, you know, you're, you're hitting, if you're a pro, you're hitting 65, 70 shots. So you can really remember all the shots that you're playing. One of the thing, one of the guys that I really respected, and I know this is a bit off topic, but you know it's a, it's our podcast, and I don't care. Yeah, do it how we want. Exactly, Greg Norman, who I loved, uh, being Australian growing up, the guy should have won so many more majors. The, and people forget that he is he um, was world number one, the second most amount of weeks in a row besides Tiger Woods, and he just you know when Larry Mize chipped in in '87 to win the uh, you know the US Masters. If he misses that if he misses that shot, it's going off the green and it's probably going to go in the water and, and Greg Norman loses. And then he, there was another chip in, I can't remember who it was, um, against Norman. And then there's, there's so many moments where he came second in majors, but he was just so honest about he gave credit to the other guys. And he said, Well, you know, on thirteen, you know, I hit a three wood, I probably should have laid up with a five iron and this is what I should have done. Or I remember I misread this part and um, I thought the greens were a little bit softer today, but you know I should have. You know, there's all these little things that he was always so honest in his answers, and that was I really respected that because you know you you could easily be like, and this this is happening just after the match where you you must be so down, you must be so sad about losing a, another major or coming second. And he just gave honest, frank answers. Was like, well, you know, got to tip my hat off to this guy. Yeah, and and that's the time where you could be really touchy. And not give a great answer and not be honest and not allow the fans to understand what's going on in the mind of a champion at a real crucial time. And I think it's even more interesting, not what's going through the mind of somebody that's been victorious, what's going through the mind of of someone who's just gotten really close and may never get back there again. I remember listening to uh, Goran Ivanizovich talking about that rain delay that just completely crushed the momentum that he had over the English dude. What's his name? Henman. Yeah. Um, wasn't it Henman? You know, or it was, it was, he lost basically a, was it the a Wimbledon. He, yeah. Uh, he beat, he beat Rafter. I know that. Um, I think it was the next year, but I think he lost. Yeah. I can't, I can't remember, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, know what, I know who you're talking about. And there's a rain delay and it just stops his momentum and then, you know, he loses the match. And I, I think he, he he talked about retiring. He was that disappointed after losing that match. Here's this player that has played his whole life to get to that stage and he was so crushed by losing that he was talking about retiring and he was in his 20s. You know, like, and to me that was just so raw and honest and about how vulnerable he felt, you know, like how disappointed he was. Even this guy who's rich, he's famous, he's at the peak of his game, he's that disappointed, he's ready to retire. You know, that's how real that interview was. Absolutely. And it was, I mean, it was heartbreaking to the Australians because he ended up beating uh, Australia's Pat Rafter in, I think it was 2001, but I do remember the moment you're talking about, but it's, tennis is one of those things where it's one or two points can 
you know, can sway a match. I mean, Federer had two match points last year against Djokovic in the Wimbledon final. He should have won the match. It probably would have been the greatest Wimbledon win ever. But Djokovic managed to to pull it out, um, much to my dismay. I think I almost broke my TV. Um, being a massive Federer fan, but you know you got to tip your hat and uh, respect the guy for um, for being that mentally tough. Is Djokovic not liked? No, I don't think he's world worldwide. It's Federer by far. Yeah. Then Nadal, and then Djokovic is he's playing third fiddle. If I'm being completely honest, and I love tennis, and I want Federer to finish with the most amount of titles, Djokovic is going to finish with the most amount of titles. He's uh, he's on sixteen. Nadal's on 19, Federer's on 20. He's five years or six years younger than Federer. And there's the new the new brigade isn't there yet. So Federer will be probably retired by next year, I'd say. He's, I mean, the guy's 38, still winning majors. He'll be retired by 39. Nadal will catch him this year because Nadal will win French Open again, barring injury. And then within two to three years, Djokovic will surpass them both. But... I think he's just not. He doesn't have that same love um, that Federer and Nadal have. I don't know why. Um, I think some of it seems a little bit forced in what he tries to do on the court. But yeah, he just doesn't have the same love that those two have. Yeah, you're clearly very knowledgeable of your tennis. So it's you know it's just that feeling you know when people like him but they don't love him for for a guy that has the success that he has on the court. He's not adored like other champions that have been in the same vein yeah absolutely listen we've got a little bit more time left in the show and i know we want to uh talk about 1917 yeah guys we're going to be getting a little bit more into movies i'm really passionate about movies um so i was really looking forward to it sam mendez directed it i think it won a few golden globes i loved it i know a lot of people are saying best war movie ever i think they're getting a little bit out of hand Uh, i saw it with a friend of mine phil last night and another friend of mine matt um, Phil, I know Phil was, he, he's a huge movie buff and he was talking about it being, you know, one of the best war movies of all time. Or um, So I'll give you my little two bits on it. Number one, the way it was filmed was incredible. The way that they made it look like it was all shot on one shot. For me, the first 15 minutes was amazing in terms of capturing the despair of World War One. So... Those guys, when they're when they're, and I, this is a if you haven't seen it, this is a little bit of a spoiler alert. But they're walking through the lines in that first fifteen minutes, and you know you see dead animals and you see these guys that are just hor- horrifically mangled bodies type thing. And that for me, they had Saving Private Ryan, which captured that first you know fifteen minutes at Normandy, which was obviously horrific. But this was more the despair of war and obviously in the mud and people dead, buried in the mud. And I think it was just how they captured it. And it was just very, very raw. I think it was just incredible. And obviously it was very, very difficult to watch. But I also think they did an amazing job capturing just how horrendous World War One was. These guys, were they built these trenches and were, the trenches were only 150 or 200 meters apart. And there's thousands and thousands of guys 150 meters apart fighting over nothing they're fighting over a piece of land and then you see actually when they walk another 500 meters and they're out in beautiful meadows and that's kind of like wow these guys are fighting over a piece of dirt so small that description really and i saw the movie and you know maybe it was just hyped up so much before i saw it i just thought 
uh, it was good, but I, I, I didn't have that feeling, you know, like it was the greatest movie. I heard it was the best move, war movie of all time. So, you know, I'm obviously a big fan of Save It Private Ryan, you know, that first couple minutes. I, I, I wasn't sure if I was going to last the whole movie. It was so intense. And then Heartbreak Ridge. But those stories had, I thought they had more layers to it, you know, mm-hmm. you know uh, being true stories. And with Heartbreak Ridge and yeah. the story of him, you know, not picking up a gun and how he was mistreated and how he was looked at after the war and, you know, not being a coward, but being the bravest person they had ever come across. You know, that underlying story with the amazing, you know, events and how it was shot. Um, I got to agree with you about 1917 though the way it was shot like how about and i don't want to be too much of a spoiler but you know how about when he leaned over and he got knocked off balance and his hand went inside a body after he had cut his hand open you know like his hand just wedged inside of and the rat was coming out oh oh it was so oh man it was i I found it intense it was mm. It it was like you said about you felt like oh my god I'm mean, you know you think of war and you think of death and you think of you know suffering and and sorrow and all of that you think of that but then that movie just takes you to another level of what it was like to run from a guy that's shooting behind you and that's what that that's for me that's what I felt so I felt I felt in the movie I was tense the whole time after the movie I was it felt like I'd done a workout. Yeah. Like I felt like it was mentally draining and physically draining. Like I felt I was running with him. I felt, you know, all those different things. And I, and I was just so tense the whole time. And, you know, when they're behind the German lines and you, you know something is going to happen, but you don't know what's going to happen. And then the scene that was super unexpected, I won't go into that, but that scene that was incredibly unexpected that you were like, wow, that that's that's because they did a really good job, I think, in disguising that in the trailer. Um, I won't say what it is because that's a way too much of a spoiler, yeah. but you know what I'm talking about. Um, oh, yeah. And I'm like, wow. And But the way they did that and how how quickly it happened, I'm like, that's that's war. It's like one minute you're there, the next minute you're not. Yeah. Just oh, and, and how about um, how many times, you know, you think you go through your life and you think, um, like I've been in a couple of car accidents and I think, you know, obviously that, you know, where the car rolled, or that really? could have very easily been the end of my life. Mm. You know, and that's happened twice. I've been in two car accidents where the car has rolled. And he was going, it was like he didn't go an hour in that journey. How many times was he just cheating death? Yeah. I mean, he's, I mean, he, he probably had a, a 5% chance of living through several of those instances. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he was just, you know, he should have bought a lottery ticket or something, but you know, I don't know if they had them back then, but that was like, Oh my God. Yeah. This, this man is going to try and live a normal life after this, after he escaped death 27 times in one day. For me, it's one of the most, and I'd, I'd hesitate to say the word beautiful, but it was beautifully filmed. And the detail that they had in terms of the set was just unbelievable. Like that first scene when you're walking through, when the camera is taking you through the trenches. I mean, how long would that have taken to make? Like that trench went for miles, and it's like that's all that that's all been built. I mean, this would have taken 
how do they have done that? I'm just astounded. And I think that's, I don't know if it won for cinematography, but in my opinion, it should. It's just incredible. Okay. Well, I'll keep this one short, but anytime I, I watch a movie and just completely forget that I'm watching a movie, that's how I felt during that movie. I felt like I was in the war. Yeah. You know, and, and the way it was shot and, and all of those things that you've mentioned. You've described it so well that I feel like I want to watch it again. <laughs> okay. Well, I will say it's it's not my it's not my number one. It's 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 up there. I still think, in my opinion, Saving Private Ryan for me is the number one because you're so attached to the journey and you're so attached to a number of different individuals. Uh, while this is all about two guys, but you know you're so attached to tom hanks character you're so attached to the sniper character because he's that you know that christian and he has all those bible quotes and you're um you're attached to finn diesel's character you every guy has a kind of a little bit of a their own personal story Giovanni rubitsky the guy who, who um who gets shot when they're trying to take you know the that that location where with the machine guns and he this despair of him calling out for his mum. Spielberg just did an incredible job for each individual character, and I, that's what, probably why I've got that on top. Yeah, and I, I think that the point that I made before is is why, you know, that would explain why that's your favorite. You mm -hmm. know, it had so many layers, you know, just like Heartbreak Ridge, you know, and I, and my favorite, I, I know we don't agree that often, but, you know, I agree, Saving Private Ryan, after I made it through the first bit, was so confronting, you know, when they stormed the beach or were stormed at the beach, really. It was more of an accurate description. Yeah, that was that was really something, you know, that movie. It's almost like, you know, sometimes you watch a movie several times because it's so good. I haven't watched it several times because I'm not ready to be that confronted. You know, I'm normally, I'm sitting down, I'm trying to relax. You know, I have to really psych myself up to see that baby again. Yeah, it's not popcorn. Yeah. It's not, I mean... Pro I mean, let's be honest. Tropic Thunder is probably the best movie. I watched that last night. <laughs> did you? I did. <laughs> Do you reckon they could get away with that now? <laughs> with uh, Not a chance. <laughs> he's a, he's an Australian playing a black oh, yeah. playing a black man. The funny thing is, black people think that thing's hilarious. You know, you don't think they could get away with this now? Um, I think that. I think I could. Well, yeah. I'm just, I'm no, no, no. Kidding. I'm just I'm just saying that. The reason it's so funny because it's it's so uh, let's see <laughs> non politically correct, and I think it's you know society is so politically correct right now. That's why it would be funny, yeah. but that's why you couldn't have that movie now. Yeah, yeah, yeah very, 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 very. The funny thing is, <laughs> black people think it's hilarious about white guy trying to act black and how he perceives black people to be. I, that's what's so funny to me. Yeah, and then the guy called him out on it. The guy called him out on it. He was mean? like, why you, are you still in character? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> what do you mean, you people? <laughs> um, yeah, so good. Actually, his latest movie is supposed to be horrific. Do little. So yeah. don't go see that. Yeah, his bank account was probably running a little bit low. After all those Iron Man's? Jeez. Um, well, what we are running low on is, uh, is time. But um, Steve, 2020, big year ahead for us. I really... I really enjoyed that, you know, the basketball, getting into the movies. But, um, you know, we're going to get into a whole bunch of different topics this year. You know, maybe a bit of fitness, but maybe a bit of wellness and all sorts of different topics. So, yeah, it's going to be good. So does that mean we can have guests that aren't basketball players? Guests that aren't basketball players. Sweet. Yeah, it was going to be a little bit different this year. 
if you are if you are listening, yeah, just so you guys know, we're going to be trying to bring you a little bit of variety this year. I know we touched upon it earlier in the show, but do make sure that you do follow us inside Slam on Instagram and make sure you follow the Global Story Network also on Instagram. We are brought to you by the Global Story Network. We're really looking forward to uh, the year ahead. And from Steve and I, we hope to have this, have you with us um, on all our podcast catches later on this year.